The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Good morning, Sacred City. Uh, This is Pastor Justin here, uh, welcoming you to our live worship gathering. We had had a little bit of curveball. Obviously, we've been looking at the weather all week, and there was about 50% chance this morning, and then it got off to about 30% uh, by the time of service. So we were hoping we could still uh, worship together in the tent, but obviously at 4.30 this morning, storms were pretty bad, lightning. Um, my power went out at my house, and we couldn't get everything set up because it was pouring down rain, and the field is just a mushy mess. And so had to call an audible, and so hopefully you all have a nice cup of coffee. You're probably still in your pajamas, and you've got the kids around with you, and we can worship together virtually the way we did it a few months back. Um, hopefully, we don't have to do this anymore, but obviously this is the risk we're taking uh, by trying to worship together out, outside and, and get as many involved as possible, which last week was a win uh, we had a hundred more people back worshiping us uh, with us last week, which was great. It was great to be together again. It was great to see some faces that I haven't seen in six weeks. And so uh, we're really thankful for the opportunity to do it. And we're going uh, gonna to play with the hand the Lord deals us, right? And so that's what we're doing this morning. And so I'm going to pray for us. And hopefully you've got everybody situated and we can uh, jump in and uh, get after it this morning. So let me pray. Father, I do thank you for your grace. I thank you for your kindness to us in Jesus. I thank you for being a God who is always present with us, a God who is even right now at work in us through your word, that your word doesn't need uh, to be preached in person to have effect, that your word can have effect through digital communication. And so we, we put our hope not in our tools, not in our own wisdom, not in our own strength, but we put our hope in your word. Would you open our minds to see something maybe we haven't seen today? Would you open our hearts to feel something we haven't felt? Would you um, give us more of your grace that you promised to give us over and over and over again? Because that's what we need. We are sinners who need grace. So would you please be present with us and help us? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, I also also want to thank those of you who have been praying for me and who have maybe uh, cooked me soup this week or gave me a gift card to get a shake. I've been on that uh, liquid diet, that soft food diet for whatever it's been now, a week or two, and uh, it's going pretty well. The Lord is sustaining me. My voice feels pretty good. Uh, It feels a little stronger this morning, but again, I can't um, raise my voice too much, so uh, I'm just going to have to do what I did last week, and kind of keep myself in check. So uh, continue to pray for me. Uh, Now today we are continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount, and specifically looking at the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, Jesus's Beatitudes. And I'm going to go ahead and read the first three verses for us. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Goes on one more verse today. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. 
Now, there's three things that I want us to remember about the Sermon on the Mount. First, Jesus is depicting and describing for us the good life. This is what it means to flourish as a human being. This is the life that human beings are meant to live on this earth. Secondly, this is the good life that was purchased and secured for us through the work of Jesus on our behalf. In other words, you can't go out and do this or be this type of person in your own strength. If you do that, you're literally just going to heap condemnation on yourself because you're never going to do this well enough. You're never going to be perfect as Jesus was perfect, like he's going to say in the Sermon on the Mount. You have to have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you. So in order to live the Sermon on the Mount, first you have to be a Christian, okay? There it is. Now third, to live as a Christian means to be growing more and more into this type of person, okay? So as we will see each week, these kingdom values are at odds with our current cultural values. They're even antagonistic to our current cultural values. And every culture that's ever existed in the world has been antagonistic to these values. Now, maybe not all of them, but at, at points they're going to push and pull against every cultural, natural cultural values. And so for us to grow as Christians is to become more and more different and distinct from those who are not following Jesus's way, okay? So we have to keep those three things in mind as way of introduction when we're studying the Sermon on the Mount. But this is where we see a big problem for us. In fact, I dare say that it's one of the greatest problems facing the American Christian church today. And it's this, the majority of American Christians aren't interested in becoming more like Jesus. They don't care. They have heard and believed a false gospel that tells them they can pray a prayer to Jesus, be saved from the wrath of hell, be blessed and highly favored in this life, and then go to heaven when they die without ever being a disciple of Jesus. Many American Christians are not interested in becoming the type of person Jesus speaks of here in the Sermon on the Mount. Many of us are far more interested in being successful in the world's eyes, in fitting in with our culture rather than standing out. We're far more concerned with politics and getting our candidate in office to push our political agenda than we are with becoming a person who actually thinks, feels, talks, and lives like Jesus did. See, for the American Christian, our Beatitudes have become blessed are the prosperous, blessed are the free, blessed are the strong, blessed are the arrogant, blessed are those who make fun of and look down on those who have different political views as they do. Now, why have we become this type of person? Because we aren't following Jesus. We've looked away from Jesus and we've looked to our favorite political commentator to shape our thoughts, to shape our attitudes, to shape our heart's loves. Some of us are being discipled more by Ben Shapiro or Trevor Noah than we are by Jesus. 
We might claim to follow Jesus, but our heart's affections are being shaped by our political affiliations more than the founder and perfecter of our faith, Jesus. And this is the reality that is in front of us. If you want to be successful in our culture's eyes, these beatitudes that Jesus teaches here are going to sound like really, really bad news for you. But if God has opened your eyes and he's opened your eyes and your heart to the realities of his kingdom, if Jesus has taken out your heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, these beatitudes are going to sound like beautiful, amazing news of the world that we all want to live in. And last week, Jesus said, blessed or flourishing are the poor in spirit. Though That's the poor in spirit, those who know they have nothing to offer God. The blessed, Jesus says, are the spiritual losers, the spiritually bankrupt, the spiritually dead. For those who have nothing to offer God, God has given them the kingdom. The first and greatest reality of the kingdom of heaven is that only the spiritually broke get in. This teaches us two amazing things. First, unlike every other religion on the planet, in Jesus' kingdom, no one can do anything to merit or earn their way into his kingdom or pay to keep themselves in his kingdom. You cannot achieve your way in, you cannot succeed your way in, or you cannot moralize your way into the kingdom of God. This literally blocks, the gates are closed in the kingdom of God to the do-gooder. And that was one of the problems the religious leaders and the religious Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious elite had with Jesus. They were living good, moral, upright lives and Jesus was blocking them and being really antagonistic with them at every turn because the proud can't enter the kingdom of God. But on the flip side of that, it also showed us last week that no matter who you are or where you come from or what you've done, you have never been too bad. You have never sinned too much to be forgiven and welcomed into God's kingdom. So, the, the, the first step into the kingdom of God is see your sin, grieve over your sins against God, and then turn to his perfect son, Jesus, who lived the life that we all should have lived and died the death that we all deserve. And trade your life of sin for his life of righteousness. That's what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. I give you my bankruptcy and he gives me his spiritual wealth, his spiritual, his righteousness. And here's what Jesus said. For those who turn from their sin and place their faith in him, he would send the Holy Spirit into them to give them a new heart, reshape their values, reshape what they love, and begin to change their hearts from the inside out. That's what Jesus promises for the spiritually bankrupt who throw their hands up and say, who file bankruptcy, <laughs> right? The ones who admit it, okay, I am spiritually broke. I can't earn my way in. He fills us with himself, the treasures, the literal treasures of heaven. All right, step one, that's how we get in, let's say, okay? Now, Jesus, step two, our second value that he's going to show us today is this. Blessed or flourishing are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Well, the first thing we need to do here is define our terms. What does it mean to mourn? Mourning is to feel or show deep sorrow 
or regret. When we go to a funeral, we mourn, right? We wear black, we are somber, we shed tears as we mourn the loss of our child or our friend or our loved one. So Jesus is saying here, if you want to flourish as a Christian, as a human, but also as a Christian, you have got to mourn. You've got to be a person that feels and shows deep sorrow or regret. Now, I should, I should tell you, I came to faith in a church that did not value mourning. They didn't even have funerals. They had, quote, celebrations of life, okay? In fact, they preached a false gospel that said, when you come to Jesus, as long as you have enough faith, you are going to be happy and prosperous. You are going to be blessed and not cursed. You're going to be the head and not the tail. And when I first came, uh, came to Jesus, I came in believing that false gospel for the first few years. But then something really traumatic happened. My best friend and roommate, who was the strongest, most faithful Christian that I knew, died suddenly while working out on his lunch break. And I was devastated. And I didn't know what to do. How could Jesus let this happen? How could God allow my best friend, who had already walked me through the, one of the darkest seasons of my life, who quoted scripture like nobody's business, who woke up and prayed and read his Bible for a couple hours every single morning. He was the kindest, gentlest man that I know. And he was fit and he was jacked and he was like, like a big brother to me. And he's running on the treadmill on his lunch break and boom, his heart stops and he's gone. That didn't look like blessed and highly favored to me. That, that didn't look like, oh, if you have enough faith, good things are going to happen to you. And that began to crumble this false gospel that I believed, all right? This um, prosperity gospel. See, and here in, the, if I would have known the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those who mourn. That is so contrary to that false gospel. Jesus says to those who've experienced the pain of the world, who've experienced such loss, and he says, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now let's ask the question here. Why is that the case? Why are those who are mourning blessed or flourishing? Wouldn't all of us, if we had to choose, wouldn't we all rather be happy than sad, right? Nobody wakes up saying, I really hope to mourn today. Leaning into this day, hoping for some mourning, right? We would all rather be happy than sad. So why does Jesus and why should Christians value mourning? Well, to put it simply, it's like this. The world is not as it should be. Sin has damaged everything. Humans weren't meant to die. We weren't meant to hurt each other or hate each other. We weren't meant to experience death, loss, and decay. And yet because of sin, we live in a sin-cursed world. We've woke up or we've been born into a sin-cursed world. We're in the middle of a story here. And this story has been infected and affected by an enemy called sin and an enemy called Satan. And... When God finally kind of opens our eyes to that fact, 
we should mourn paradise lost. We should mourn the fact that we don't live in the Eden that Adam and Eve lived in. Now, as I say that, I know how contrary that is to our culture. Um, this is a, in stark difference to between, there's a stark contrast, a stark difference between the Christian worldview and that of atheistic or scientific naturalism. See, those who believe that everything exists, including human beings, are nothing more than the result of uncaused, accidental, blind chance, and then natural selection for that worldview, right, that more than likely your science teacher taught you in high school or maybe taught you in college, your biology teacher. What is death? Well, death is nothing in that worldview. Or, or maybe Simba, right? Simba taught you this, right? This, it's just the circle of life, right? We just sing about this in, in The Lion King, right? It's the circle of life, right? Death is nothing. There's nothing to mourn here. There's nothing to see. You came from nothing. You were a blind chance. You were an accident. You were an accident. And guess what? When you die, you came from nothing and you go to nothing. There's nothing to mourn here. Now, this is what's being taught, right? In scientific naturalism. This is why the proponents of that worldview, those who embrace that worldview, even at the popular level, feel no remorse in the killing of unborn babies in their mother's wombs. There's not, nothing to mourn here. It's just a clump of cells. It's just a fetus. It's just a woman's choice. Now, how different from the worldview of Jesus for who first off says, blessed are those who do mourn. And then Jesus who walked around showing us what it looks like to actually mourn the injustices and the brokenness in the wounds of this world. Did you know that Jesus, it's a very strange scene in the, in the 11th chapter of the gospel of John. Commentators differ on how to interpret it. If you ask 10 different Christians what Jesus is doing, you might get 10 different answers. But Jesus is mourning the death of his friend Lazarus, even though he was about to bring him back to life. It's a very strange scene, right? If we knew what was going to happen, we would show up to Jesus and go, Jesus, Jesus, wait for the facts. Jesus, don't mourn yet. Wait for the facts. He's going to get up, actually. You're actually going to bring him back to life. Nothing to mourn here, Jesus. But Jesus obviously knows what he's going to do, and yet Jesus still mourns. We see him in the 11th chapter of John, standing at the grave of his friend Lazarus. He knows he's about to bring him to life, and what does he do? He cries. Shortest verse in all the Bible. We all know, many of us know this. Jesus wept, right? And what's interesting is the next verse shows us why Jesus was weeping. It's very clear. This is what the next verse says. The next verse says, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. Do you see what, what, what they're doing there? Jesus weeps and mourns over Lazarus's death because he loved him so much. And when you love someone, you don't want to see them suffer and die. Pretty simple, right? Now, what this also shows us, here it is. The more you love, period, okay? The more you love, the more you will mourn. 
This is one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves, and I've probably quoted this more times than any other quote in the history of Sacred City, but it's so good it needs to be requoted. So here it is. Lewis says this, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. See, this is important for us to see. Jesus, in a broken world, a sin-infected world, Jesus walked around with a heart soft enough to be hurt. Did you know there's three separate times in the scriptures that, G that show Jesus crying? He's at the grave of Lazarus, right? He's weeping over the loss of his friend, over the loss of life, over the brokenness of the story that we're in now that people actually die. He's weeping over Lazarus. Then we see him two times actually grieved when he's looking over the city. He comes up on a hill and he looks over the city of Jerusalem and he's grieved and his heart is broken. And then one time it clearly says that he weeps over the city of Jerusalem for their refusal to hear his words and accept the gospel of the kingdom. That Jesus was broken over the lost of the city. He came to heal and to, to restore and be the savior of the world and yet people were rejecting him and that broke the heart of Jesus. And then in Hebrews chapter five, verse seven, the writer says that Jesus, while on this earth, he prayed to God with loud cries and tears. As he endured the emotional pain of suffering, the betrayal of his friends. We know Judas's betrayal and Peter's betrayal. And, and obviously what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane where he was crushed, he said his spirit was crushed at the point of death when his, his disciples couldn't even pray with him and he was about to be betrayed and he was about to go to the cross to give up his life to save sinful people like us. That Jesus wept, even his, he even sweat drops of blood. He was experiencing so much emotional turmoil. This is why the Bible called Jesus the man of sorrows. He was love incarnate, love put on flesh and walked among us. And here's the, here's the reality. This is the reality for us. When you are not all absorbed in yourself, you can feel the sadness of the world. That's why Jesus walked around sad. That's why Jesus wept with those who wept. That's why Jesus mourned. That's why Jesus was called the man of sorrows because he was love. 
And when you're love and you're not all self-interested and self-focused and self-absorbed, you can actually feel the sadness of the world. You have a heart soft enough to be hurt, soft enough to grieve, soft enough to mourn. Now, I think, especially in our climate right now, too many Christians are unable to mourn with those who mourn because they're afraid of giving up political ground. Do you mourn for the unarmed black man killed at the hand of police officers? Do you mourn for the police officers who are killed in the line of duty trying to protect us? Do you mourn for the 800,000 plus babies who are killed in the womb each year? Do you mourn for the lost in our cities who don't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior? Jesus mourns for all of those, and so should we. So what are we to do? The choice here, I think, is quite simple. Jesus shows us it. It's the choice between self-protection and love. Jesus is teaching us if we want to flourish as Christians, if we want to have the blessed life, we must choose to love. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are willing to suffer and grieve and experience loss in this world. Here it is. Here's the promise. For they will be comforted. Do you hear the promise in that statement? Christians don't fear mourning. We don't wake up and try to strengthen ourselves and try to harden our heart and try to protect ourselves and step into our day afraid of anything that bad might, might happen and try to keep all the evils of the world at bay. No, no, no. Christians keep a soft heart and they're they're not afraid to mourn. Why? Because they will be comforted, Jesus says. Those who are willing to walk around life with a heart soft enough to feel the sadness of the world will experience the comfort from God. Jesus is telling us something really important here. He's, he's echoing the psalmist who says in 34, 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus is saying, those who are brokenhearted, those who are crushed in spirit, those who mourn the brokenness of our world, the lostness of their friends and neighbors, he will be near you and give you divine, supernatural comfort. Now the question we could beg the question here, how does God comfort us in our mourning? Well, God comforts Christians in their mourning in at least two ways. First, by being present with us in whatever it is that we're going through. The Holy Spirit that Jesus and the Father sends to us, one of his names is the Comforter. 
So many times while we are suffering and while we are mourning and while we are grieving, God will draw near to us and meet us in our suffering in a very special way. I don't know any better modern day example of this than Joni Erickson Tata. She was a teenager. I think she was 17 or 18. Um, lived a very active lifestyle, and then she dove headfirst in the Chesapeake Bay and didn't realize how shallow it was, and she broke her neck and paralyzed her, and she's been paralyzed from the neck down ever since. And um, since that day, she has dealt with anger, depression, suicidal thoughts, and plenty of religious doubts. And she has become a Christian who writes powerfully on suffering and mourning and walking with God in it. And she has one book that's, that's entitled When God Weeps. And this is what she writes. It's very powerful. She says this, Our heartfelt plea is for assurance, fatherly assurance, that there is an order to reality that far transcends our problems that somehow everything will be okay. We amble along on our philosophical, uh, philosophical path, then bam, we get hit with suffering. No longer is our fundamental view of life providing a sense of meaning or a sense of security in our world. Suffering has not only rocked the boat, it's capsized it. We need assurance that the world is not splitting apart at the seams. We need to know we aren't going to fizzle into a zillion atomic particles and go spinning off into space. We need to be reassured that the world, the universe, is not in nightmarish chaos, but orderly and stable. God must be at the center of things. He must be in the center of our mourning, of our suffering. What's more, he must be daddy personal and compassionate. This is our cry. God, like a father, doesn't just give advice. He gives himself. He becomes the husband to the grieving widow. He becomes the comforter to the barren woman. He becomes the father of the orphaned. He becomes the bridegroom to the single person. He is the healer to the sick. He is the wonderful counselor to the confused and depressed. Man, God, like a good father, doesn't just give advice, he gives himself. And so when we're suffering, one of the greatest promises from God to comfort us in our suffering doesn't come at the removal of our circumstances. It comes by God being present with us him stepping into our situation with us. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? In the Old Testament who were thrown into a fiery furnace, but instead of being consumed, they didn't get delivered from it. They got put in it. But the, what did the onlooker say? The onlooker said, we put three in the fire, but now there's four in the fire. And one of them looks like the son of God. Jesus is that fourth person in the fire. And no matter what we go through, no matter what suffering or mourning or difficulty, he promises to be there with us. 
take us through the fire and through the flood and through our mourning. But there's one other way, as I close this morning, there's one other way that God comforts us in our mourning. And he, we can see this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verses 13 through 18. And here, he gives approval of grieving. He gives approval of mourning. But he adds something to it. He tells us to grieve, but to grieve with hope in the resurrection of the body and the renewal of all things at the second coming of Jesus. Let's look at chapter 4, verse 13 in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Saying this, he's talking about the coming of the Lord and the fact that some Christians have died. Many first century believers thought Jesus was going to come back right away, right? They didn't have the long-term view. They didn't understand how long Jesus was going to be gone and the work that he wanted to do in his kingdom on this earth. And so when Jesus ascended, they were expecting him to descend really soon. So this is what um, the author writes. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, literally dead. That you may not, listen, you may not grieve as, as others do who have no hope. Okay. He's saying there's two ways to grieve here. There's two ways to suffer. There's two ways to mourn. You can grieve and suffer and mourn as others do who have no hope. Or you can grieve, suffer, and mourn as those who have a hope. Well, let's look at the hope. Verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This is from Jesus. That we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Listen. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage with one another with these words. So the author is literally saying, when we grieve, one of the ways God comforts us in our grief is for us to have an eternal perspective, for us to think about the fact that this mourning is temporary, this grieving is temporary, death is temporary, that Jesus is coming back and the dead in Christ will rise from their grave and get real physical bodies, new physical bodies to live in a new heavens and a new earth that he's creating, that every stain of sin will be removed from it. Every amount of injustice will be removed from it. Everything that keeps us divided, removed. Every tear that falls through our eye, that falls from our eye, he will personally wipe them away. That when we're mourning and we're grieving the, the injustices and the pain and the losses of this life, we should be okay to grieve that, okay to mourn that, and yet we need to keep one eye, right? One eye on heaven, one eye on the new heavens and the new earth, one eye on the king who's going to come and make all things new and all things good. Now, listen, so that's, that's the two ways he comforts us. One, he comforts us by being present with us. Second way he comforts us is looking to the hills from where our help comes. Look up to Jesus, right? Now listen, there's a lot of pain and a lot of brokenness and a lot of hurt in this world. And we're called by God to be peacemakers, people that go out into the world and try to make the world a better place. We want to remove our world from as much injustice as possible, but we have to do that knowing we will never bring the kingdom on this earth. Only the king can do that. Only the king can fix everything that's broken in our world, right? 
And I'm going to apply this in a kind of a specific way today. When I look at what's going on with the racial division in our country right now, I have to be honest. It seems that many on the political right who call themselves Christians have lost their hearts. They can't mourn like Jesus. They can't mourn like Jesus did over, his, over the loss of life of Lazarus, over, over the brokenness of the city of Jerusalem. They can't mourn with those who mourn. They can't show compassion to their black brothers and sisters in Christ who have experienced real injustices in our society. And I'm going to tell you, that is shameful. But it also seems that those who are on the left and call themselves Christians have lost their heads. They mourn, but get lost in their mourning. Mourning is important, but you've got to keep your head. You got to, you can't just freak out, right? You got to keep your head. You got to provide real workable solutions. Too many people today either are too hard-hearted to mourn with those who are mourned, or they're too lost in their mourning to mourn with hope, looking to Jesus to make all things new. And I'm going to tell you, Jesus tells us to do both. Listen, you don't need all the facts before you mourn with those who mourn. If you're on a jury, you need all the facts. But just to grieve another loss of life, honestly, it doesn't matter what he did. You can grieve the loss of life. You can grieve it. It's okay to grieve it. Jesus grieves it. But you don't need to lose your head in the process, right? And many who are grieving have lost their minds. Jesus tells us to do both. You're in a broken world. You're in a war. But you don't have the excuse or the right to harden your heart. Keep your heart soft, but don't lose your head in the process. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would make us like that. It, it seems to be a tightrope to walk, to mourn without losing ourselves in the morning or without hardening our heart because we just don't want to feel the pain of the world. We just don't want to feel the injustice of the world. Our minds can't even fathom the fact that maybe we grew up in a society that prejudiced one or the other and we, it, we just can't even compute it. And so we harden our heart and we won't listen. Father, would you cut through the bars of iron here? Would you water the deserts of our soul? Would you soften hard hearts? And Father, would you also help us to keep our heads? Help us to keep our minds set on you, our minds set on the kingdom, that we would keep fighting for justice. We would keep fighting for your kingdom, we keep fighting to love our neighbors. We keep fighting to, for, for the mission of God to move forward in our city and people to come to know Jesus Christ. We keep fighting to make your word, to live out your, all the implications of your word and we wouldn't lose ourselves in the philosophies of the world or the prescriptions of the world. Father, but we would stay true to your, your word. Your word is what gives us life. So what I pray, Father, for your people at Sacred City, that we would, be, we would be these people that have the soft heart that can mourn with those who mourn, but they keep their head about them and they don't lose their minds in the process. Father, would you meet us here? 
Uh, Would you save those who don't know you? And would you um, empower us to live for your kingdom in our city, in our missional community, in our family, and in our world? In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.